show. And uh, what we like to do, we record on uh, Fridays with uh, Warren Kinsella. It's become a, a ritual for us, a weekly visit, not what I would call a cultist uh, uh, ritual, a very, very healthy <laughs> ritual. Uh, we've got a, a mix of uh, sad and happy as always because, well, that's what we do. We reflect uh, real life. Warren Kinsella, you have had uh, so many lives, uh, you know, whether it's a lawyer, war room guy, a public relations expert, uh, which, of course, you still do as uh, the uh, CEO of, of Daisy Group. But in recent days, you have really gotten back into reporting. But before you tell us about what you're reporting on, uh, you know, primary material that you're gathering right now for your next uh, post-media column, um, if you could give the audience a, a sense of what uh, this uh, Renaissance man was doing many, many years ago when you first got interested in, in reporting, uh, what brought you to the party? Yeah, you always ask the question that I'm thinking about. I, I just find it, you know, in my my old age, as I as I'm in my final chapter here, I find it kind of cool that I'm ending up doing what I did at the start when I was in my 20s and a young reporter at the Calgary Herald, and I broke the story about the Aryan nations setting up in that province and and broke some other stories, and I, I loved investigative stuff. <laughs> some people told me I was okay at it and uh, became some of the books that I did. But I'm kind of at, at my advanced age uh, doing what I did at the start and I find it uh, that I'm loving it. And, and of course, journalism, as you and I both know, ain't what it was uh, 40, <laughs> 30 years ago. Um, it's, uh, you know, very different. And here we are on this platform. Who would have thunk it? But, um, you know, it's it's fun to get back to calling people and taking notes and going through documents and and trying to find the bad guys and figure out who the good guys are. It's fun to be doing that work again. So Woodward and Bernstein, uh, famous uh, for Watergate, of course, and the investigation they did into Watergate, which led uh, to the impeachment and exit of, of Richard Milhouse. Nixon, uh, one of the phrases that everybody remembers, whether it's because they read the book about them or whether they watched uh, the movie with Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, is the phrase, follow the money. Warren Kinsella in reporter mode has been following the money lately. What's that money trail about and, and where is it leading you? Well, um, as you know, I've been involved in politics for many years. And one of the things, whether you're a journalist or you're a political hack, you learn you can go into a campaign office and see if they're winning or losing. Uh, but you could also look at a rally or a protest or some gathering of people and see if it's professional or not. And what I was always struck by is prior to October 7th, the anti-Israel protesters, you know, there weren't many of them. They were few and far between, and they were a pretty ragtag bunch. October 7th happens, and it's this dramatic transformation where you were getting huge crowds uh, professionally rendered signs and flags and banners. They've got organizers, they're handing out food and drink and so on. And so I did what any political person would do is, who's paying for this? Like there's money now involved in this. So I started digging into it. And just in one province in on Vancouver Island in Victoria, I found, for example, a group called the Plenty Collective, who had been organizing anti-Israel protests for some months which is fine. They're permitted to do that uh, under our constitution. It's constitutionally protected. Um, but it turned out that they were paying people to show up as much as $20,000 a month. 
I dug further into it. Looks like they and some allied organizations have received money uh, from government and um, uh, <laughs> and it kind of goes on from there. So I guess the, the upshot of it is, Charles, that these protests you're seeing on TV, they may look formidable and they may look scary, but the thing that I'm increasingly believing is that many of the people that you're seeing on the screen, perhaps even most, are kind of paid actors. They're paid to be there. And that changes the complexion of the whole thing. So you've been uh, writing about this in your post-media columns, and you've got another one coming up. Let's uh, keep following uh, the money here. And uh, specifically, where is it coming from? Which organization? Which country? Iran. Iran, Iran, Iran. And, you know, if you look at all of the evil, all of the trouble that's happening in the world, the majority of it goes back to Iran. If you follow the money there, um, you know, they're backing the Houthis who shut down 70% of the shipping traffic in the Red Sea. Um, they have bombed Pakistan, Iraq, and Syria in the past week. And of course, they've been supplying Hezbollah and Hamas with billions in armaments for a much longer period of time. And so uh, I don't want to scoop myself, but I've got a story coming out on the weekend in Post Media showing that Iran is behind activity, not only in those places that I just listed, but also in places like Canada, involvements with anarchist groups and others, and money going back and forth, wire transfers, so on. I've got some of those documents now. I've been going through it with cyber detectives. And I got a pretty good story coming on Sunday that makes clear that the ultimate benefactor of all of this anti-Semitism and this anti-Israel stuff and this anarchy, this chaos that's happening in the streets, the ultimate beneficiary is, is the Iranian regime. So I wouldn't be uh, doing my job on, on this particular podcast if uh, we're talking about money, if I didn't ask a central question here. Where is the Iranian regime getting its money from to do all of this? Uh, well, it has been quite adept at circumventing the trade restrictions that exist. Like, for example, Canada's had trade restrictions on Iran uh, for more than a decade. And so it's effectively a law. You're not allowed to do any business with Iran technology, obviously anything that could be used in a nuclear capacity. Um, and most other civilized nations have the same thing. But Iran making use of proxies, making use of willing partners like South Africa, who recently brought this action against Israel at the International Court of Justice, have been assisting it in circumventing those rules. They're two biggest benefactors, Russia and China. And so anybody listening to all this, this alphabet soup of countries and organizations, why are they doing this? Russia, China, Iran, and their proxies have a compelling self-interest in destabilizing democracy in the West, where we are, and they've been at work at that for many years. And uh, they become much more aggressive and much more effective at what they do. So let's go to the politics of this. Uh, there is only one superpower. There are all these other powers who want a piece of it all. But let's face it, the only superpower in the world right now, especially if we're following money, is the United States. Uh, the government is being led by Joe Biden. He's in the White House. What's the impact on Biden uh, 
with everything that you're talking about, the world seeming to be ablaze, uh, the arsonists being Russia, China, and Iran. What's Biden doing about it, and is Biden being blamed for it? Uh, well, he's bombing the Houthis with the support, uh, I'm pleased to say, of Canada. I'm, you know, I applaud the Trudeau government for participating in that effort, which involves the Brits and other countries to eliminate the Houthi threat in the Red Sea. Um, so he's doing that. He's got a battle group, which is basically a small country in boats uh, offshore of Israel, basically to send a warning to Hezbollah and other nations not to get involved in the fight against Israel and to let it happen between Israel and Hamas. Um, so he's doing the right things. The problem, Charles, is he's not getting the credit for it. You know, equally, he's not, as we've talked about before, he's not getting credit for his economic achievements. He's got full employment in the United States. That economy is, is going on all cylinders, but he still is struggling. And I think, you know, the reason why we've talked about chaos uh, a minute ago, you know, and how Iran and China and Russia seek chaos in the West. Well, the main chaos and agent in the West is Donald Trump. And Trump, as we saw this week, won handily in Iowa in the Republican primary, our caucus there. Um, I think more than 20 mo points more than uh, Haley or DeSantis. And uh, it looks to me, unfortunately, like he may eke a victory in New Hampshire too. And he lost in New Hampshire when he won the nomination last time. So I think if he wraps up New Hampshire, um, it's going to be pretty hard to stop him. And he is the chaos agent. He is who Russia and Iran and China want. Now, there's, there's a lot of talk in media about how uh, Trump embraces authoritarianism, and, and we can go there, but I, I want to go down a, a different path, if you don't mind, for just a moment. What's the Trump position, and frankly, the Nikki Haley position as well, when it comes to Joe Biden's responsibility for feeding Iran and threatening the planet? Well, he, uh, it's very, you know, the foreign policy of Trump is actually difficult to figure out. You know, he was a sworn enemy of North Korea, and then he declared <laughs> the North Korean dictator his best friend. Uh, he was critical of the Chinese and then favorable towards the Chinese. So trying to look through the entrails and figure out his foreign policy in any given time is hard to do. For example, right now, Charles, uh, reporters, for obvious reasons, have been looking very closely and asking a lot of questions. Does Donald Trump still favor withdrawing from NATO? That was his previous stated position. Well, he's got a much more professional campaign staff now. They're better at spotting bear traps, and they're just not answering that question. That should concern us all. Haley, on the other hand, I think is a more predictable element. Her record is there for everybody to see. She was under Trump, the ambassador of the United States to the United Nations, and the positions that were articulated there are, my understanding, are more hers than they were Donald Trump's. Uh, it was a more reasonable American voice on the world stage. So, you know, my full disclosure, I've worked for Joe Biden in the last presidential campaign in the lead up to it. So, as you know, I favor him. But if I can't have him, I want to have Nikki Haley because she seems to be sane. Uh, and she's got a public record that we can take a look at. She's done some things that are really stupid, like her comments about slavery. 
Um, she plays, she kind of bobs and weaves on racism. I don't know why she just doesn't say Trump is a racist. He's been making racist statements about her, but she's obviously far better than um, the alternative. But unfortunately, the alternative at this point is Donald Trump, and it looks like he may win. Aren't Donald Trump and Nikki Haley on the same page in saying that Joe Biden has screwed up big time by sending billions of dollars to Iran and trying to get Iran uh, back into the game of uh, limiting nuclear weapons and in return freeing up uh, money uh, that was in uh, bank accounts in the United States, sending it to Iran? Uh, you're 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 a, maybe a full-time journalist right now. What's the reality? of that. What's the reality behind the allegation made by Trump and Haley and most Republicans that Joe Biden is responsible for billions of dollars going to Iran, which is being used to do all the things that we've just been talking about, creating chaos? Well, it's a ridiculous allegation to say that Biden in any way favors um, uh, Iran or the Iranian regime or what they are up to. I mean, he's bombing the living shit out of one of you know their proxies. Right. They've been saying back to the West, well, if you want us not to do that, you've got to pay for the privilege. Um, and so there's been a back and forth on that. Biden came into power on a promise to have some kind of engagement with Iran. Uh, he has done that. Does he regret that? It is possible because it's, as we're now seeing in Israel, uh, in Yemen and in other places, Iran has possibly taken it as a license to become even more aggressive and destabilizing than before. So I'm not giving Trump and Haley credit for their criticism. Um, you know, and Trump's a madman, so it's hard to figure out what goes on in his tiny skull at any given time. But there may be uh, criticism that can be fairly made that um, the uh, Iranians fooled us to some extent. So would it be uh, fair to say that if Warren Kinsella was running a Republican war room, and you've been talking about how Trump has a much more professional staff. So if a professional like you was running, whether it's the Trump war room or the Haley war room, irrelevant to me on this issue, if you were running the Republican presidential war room, would you be making the case that Joe Biden has put money into the hands of Iran? Yeah, and uh, you know they have done that and they will. If you look at Haley last night in the town hall that I believe was on CNN, she was much more critical of Biden on issues like that than she was of Trump. You know, her for every mention she made of Trump, she had three of Biden. So she's focused on Biden. And so that criticism is there and it'll keep coming. How much do American voters care about foreign affairs? Not a ton, not a lot. And, um, you know, we've seen this in the past. They re they don't really pay attention to these foreign wars, you know, and. 4% of Americans have a passport, you know, they're just, they, they tend to look inward much more than Canadians and Europeans do. Um, so can the needle be moved by foreign affairs issues? I don't think so. One, I think the ballot question may become on the international affairs front in the United States. Aren't you tired of all these wars? Aren't you tired of all this fighting? Bring in a strong man like Donald Trump and he'll stop all the wars. He won't, of course. He's going to make it worse. But some suckers may buy that one. I think it may be Warren Kinsella in the last uh, 25 years who taught me that the way to make foreign policy politically weaponized is to turn foreign policy into a national security issue. 
Isn't it yeah. true that between what's happening on the southern border and what's happening in the Middle East, Donald, whether it's Donald Trump or Nikki Haley, the Republicans will be able to make the case that Joe Biden's chaotic management is impacting on national security, public safety in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's the argument. That's exactly the argument that's being made by the majority of Israelis in Israel who want Netanyahu out. Exactly that, which is you've imperiled our security with your chaotic reign and uh, you're not getting the job done. And so, you know, God forbid if there's a terrorist incident between now and uh, the next presidential vote uh, next November, uh, that will accrue to the benefit of whoever the Republican nominee is and likely Donald Trump. Let's uh, bring it to Canada. What's uh, the horse race looking like right now? And when I say right now, I think it's fair to say we're at least 18 months away from the, the next election. Uh, what are we looking at? Well, I'm not so sure. Um, well, it, you know, what I'm hearing, um, and some of my colleagues are hearing, is, you know, tr Trudeau obviously uh, benefits politically if Trump's on the ballot in the United States. Uh, the world does not benefit, but he can then point to the United States and say, look, you need an antidote to what's going on there. And Pierre Polyev is not it. He thinks, you know, Donald Trump's the bee's knees. So um, I'm hearing that, you know, if Trump wraps it up by the month of June, um, liberals are being told to possibly get ready for a snap election around then. Because if Trump is the ballot question in Canada in the next federal general election campaign, that works much better for Justin Trudeau than it does for Pierre Polyev. As to whether you know that those events will come to pass, who knows? Um, in terms of the polls right now, Polyev is still winning. On the day I was up in Ottawa for Kretzian's 90th birthday party, we can talk about that in a minute if you like, and uh, an abacus poll dropped like an anvil and uh, showed that the Tories were 17 points ahead of the Liberals. Like it's just like, save the furniture time total disaster um and uh but that shrunk a bit it's now down to probably about 10 points not as bad you know but it's still a majority conservative victory by the looks of it even if you factor in the wasted vote that they've got in places like alberta and saskatchewan so um uh, you know i'm heading off to meet for the first time, one of Trudeau's ministers, Minister Champagne, he's the kind of guy I could see being a successor. If he ran and won, you know, for the liberal leadership, would he win? I, I still don't think so. I think it's pretty tough. Um, but right now, you know, the biggest asset the Tories have got is the unpopularity of Justin Trudeau. Let me put your uh, war room uh, hat uh, back on here, Warren. Uh, if uh, you want to make the case that uh, Canada has to fear Donald Trump, and anyone who's basically uh, looks up to Donald Trump like a like a Pierre Polyev. Uh, if that's the case you're making, isn't the optic more effective when you have Donald Trump in January of 2025 uh, with his left hand on the Bible and becoming the president once again of the United States? Isn't that optic much more effective for you than uh, Donald Trump simply winning the wrapping up the primaries in June of this yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Uh, that's why I was surprised to hear about these preparations, um, you know, for June for a July vote. But I mean, as you and I also both know, um, 
uh, you don't have elections in Canada in the wintertime. Like, just take a look out the window and you got the reason why, right? So you, you can't have a campaign in January, right? It just, it doesn't work. Everybody's cranky and miserable and half of them are in Florida. So it, it, the timing there does not work. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle, Charles, between January and June. I don't know, maybe in the fall. But basically, if the public opinion crystallizes in Canada, and the majority of voters who tend to be liberal voters are scared shitless about Trump. If that becomes the issue, then Justin Trudeau is a much more competitive uh, candidate than was previously the case. Once again, I want to go to your, your skills as a, as a strategist. Is the anticipation of Trump, and that would come if when he wraps up the primaries around uh, June of this year, is the anticipation of Trump more fearsome uh, and more potent as a political weapon against the Canadian Conservatives than the actual election of Trump? It's uh, a good question. I don't get the sense, I don't know what you feel, um, sort of answer a question with a question. I don't get the sense that a lot of Canadians are paying attention to the primary races in the United States uh, at the moment. Um, I think that will change if Trump starts to accumulate wins, as you know, we're all told that he's going to, and maybe they get anxious. But there's a lot of things for people to be distracted by at the moment. You know, we got a terrible war in the Middle East. We've got the war in Ukraine. Um, <laughs> we got a story this week that 100% lethal COVID derivative has been created in a lab in China. There's all kinds of crap going on to distract people. It needs to, you know, in the war rooms that I do, we tell stories. We remind people about stuff. And I think I would be keeping my powder dry right now if I were the liberals and wait until there were, the threat was more apparent and much more evident in people's minds. So, Warren, uh, let's uh, wrap up as uh, we did last week, but in a, in a little different way. Uh, we were anticipating uh, Jean Chrétien's 90th birthday party. Uh, you were there. Uh, nobody is uh, closer to uh, Chrétien in uh, 2024 and uh, 2021 and uh, 1991 outside of his late wife, of course, Aline, the lovely Aline. But outside of her, nobody is closer to uh, Jean Chrétien's heart and soul. Uh, Jean Chrétien at his birthday party uh, did take a few swings at uh, Pierre Polyev. Politically, does it matter that the old man is taking the baseball bat to the young man? Yeah, no, it was, um, so I'll give you the, I didn't take any notes. I turned my phone off. I wasn't there as a journalist, uh, but there was about 350 people there, uh, Charles, some I hadn't seen in years. So all of us looked a bit older. It was like a high school reunion for political hacks, but they were very smart political hacks. The 350 people in that room for the party was organized by Chrétien's daughter, France, who's married to Andre Demeray, and they put on a great show. You know, they're the most winning team for the most winning political machine in Western democracy. They won three under Chrétien, three back-to-back -back majorities. That hasn't happened since Wilfrid Laurier. And so what I was struck by, I kind of went around and I saw all kinds of people, cabinet ministers, staffers, you name it. And I said, I'd say to them pretty much the same question. Are you involved anymore? And the answer always came back, no. And then I'd say to them, well, why? And they, they would say, well, I'm not wanted. Then I'm not wanted. And um, 
I, I don't get that. Like, I can understand why they don't want me. Like, I'm a pain in the ass and a big mouth. And, uh, but, you know, that's what people pay me to do. And that's how I am. But some of the people in that room, Charles, there's a, there is, there was thousands of years of excellent political experience. And the Trudeau guys just haven't reached out to it. And I think they're going to rue the day. Um, you know, like, give you an example. Uh, Clinton came on for a video birthday greeting. Kim Campbell was wonderful. Joe Clark was wonderful. The guy who brought down the house was Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper started crooning to Jean Chrétien French like Marilyn Monroe can croon to JFK. You should have seen it. Like it was, and you could see in every case genuine affection for this man. And uh, uh, I just how they could dispense with his experience. Like he stood up there and he said, look, he said, look, the economy is doing well in this country. We've got a better debt to GDP ratio than anybody in the G7. We're better in the G7 in many indicators. And by the way, Canada is not broken. Standing up is a standing uh, ovation. Like, you know, I know, like I'm saying to you, it's not, obviously I'm biased and I love him, but if he was running against Pierre Polyev, he'd clobber him. He'd drive him into the mat. You know, Polyev would be a stain on the mat. And <laughs> so why? Despite, yeah. <laughs> I just need, why to the, just need to ask a question. Do you honestly believe that a 90-year-old uh, Krecha, uh, you know, someone basically twice the age of Polyev, uh, can beat the young man today? When did Berlusconi win? How old was he? How about Mitterrand? How about him? How about Joe Biden, who I believe is going to win, right? I mean, Biden is a young man, I guess, you know, compared to Gretchen. <laughs> yeah, a little younger but, than Gretchen. You know, uh, yeah, for sure. Our politicians are getting older. The median age on Parliament Hill is 55, I believe. So, uh, you know, it's really, it's it's not the, the numbers on your birth certificate, in my opinion, ever. Because, you know, Donald Trump's going to be 82, um, 80 as well is, um, you know, what's going on in your head? What's going on in your heart? And people feel like, I, I, you know, I've told the story, walking the street with Kretschian. People love the guy. They love him. And uh, selfies and handshakes and, you know, you know, we miss you. Come back. And um, they don't care how old he is. And so, yeah, I do believe that Kretschian, were he to run again, would beat them all. And uh, I'm not alone in thinking that. So, uh, Snookums, do you still love me as much as I love you? I love you. I love you, and I'm glad you're back. And uh, I'm glad me, you got me on your show, and I'm all dressed up for you, see? Yeah, very spiffy. Very spiffy indeed. Warren Kinsella, he is the CEO of Daisy Group, and he's back to journalism. And uh, we thank him for being back with us on Fridays, but it doesn't matter to us when you listen to this. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Charles Adler Show podcast. Thank you.